This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to this edition of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. Today's topic, how green is my Judaism? Green, of course, symbolizes all things environmental and ecological. These are modern concepts, of course, and so is the term environmental protection. So what could Judaism, which goes back 3,500 years, possibly have to do with going green? The answer is everything. The term environmental protection may be relatively new, but it's been a serious concern of Judaism going all the way back to the laws of the Torah itself. In some respects, in fact, the Torah's laws and the enabling legislation that flowed from them in the Talmud and later rabbinic decisions remain far ahead of the modern curve. In a very real sense, for example, as you'll hear later on in the podcast, driving over the speed limit is a clear violation of Torah law. We'll get to that in a bit. The Torah, way back then, 3,500 years ago, understood the need to protect the natural world, even if we humans didn't understand that, and even as some still don't understand it or simply don't want to. Part of the problem, of course, is that unless a person knows how to read it, the Torah is just words. Too few of us know how to read it. We read what the words say, when what we should be reading is what those words really mean. Let me explain. The Torah's laws are for all times, all places, and all situations. But no book, not even the Torah, could be written like that. So the laws in the Torah are more like chapter headings. Over time, the sages of the Talmud and the rabbis who came after them had the task of filling in those chapters. We'll get back to that. For now, let me give you an example of what I mean by reading but not understanding. From time immemorial, there have been those who say that we can do whatever we want with our world because the Bible says so. As proof, they cite Genesis 1.26, which has God saying that humans, quote, shall rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, the whole earth, and all the creeping things that creep on earth, end quote. They also cite a verse from Psalms that states, Quote, the heavens are the heavens of the Lord, but he has given the earth to humankind. End quote. They quote these verses, but they ignore all the other words in the Torah and the rest of the Tanakh, because quoting out of context suits the agenda they're espousing. In this case, as they see it, these verses say we can do whatever we want with our world. But according to one rabbi who studied these verses, the people who think that's what these verses say are, in his words, simply ignorant. The meaning of he has given the earth to humankind, this rabbi once wrote, is that man is God's pakid over the earth and must do everything according to God's word. Pakid, he explained, means steward or caretaker. It's a specific term referring to a commission for a specific task. That task, this rabbi pointed out, is found in Genesis chapter 2. And the Lord God took the human and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and to watch over it. In other words, he said, the first human wasn't put in the garden to abuse it, but to work it, and even more important, to watch over it, to make sure that it's not abused in any way. 
You can't quote that verse from Genesis 1 and ignore what Genesis 2 has to say. Yet these people do. The rabbi who said this, by the way, wasn't a tree hugger of any kind, and he wouldn't even have understood what that meant. To him, green was just a color, and he never heard of environmental protection or global warming. His name was Abraham Ibn Ezra. He was born around the year 1093, and he wrote his comments about those two verses a little over 900 years ago. And he wasn't the first rabbi to make that point. Long before Ibn Ezra, rabbis of the Talmudic period nearly 2,000 years ago were making the same point in their own way in what's known as the Midrash, rabbinic texts that often invent fantastical scenarios as teaching devices. One such Midrash has God taking the first human on a tour of his new home in the Garden of Eden. At the end of the tour, God turns to the first human and issues a stern warning, says God. Be very careful not to corrupt and destroy my world. If you corrupt it, there is no one to repair it after you. We've heard words very much like that many times over in the last 50 years or so, but these words were written down nearly 2,000 years ago. The sages made up that conversation between God and the first human as a teaching device because the Torah's laws require us to protect our world and everything in it. And this story dramatically makes that point. As I said, you can't just read the Torah's words. You need to read the meaning of those words. Not only may one not cite a verse without seeing what else the Torah says about the subject, but one also needs to consider that when it comes to the laws in the Torah, they really are chapter headings for the most part. For example, in Deuteronomy, the Torah sets out the rules of war, which includes a prohibition against destroying food-bearing trees. First, let me quote what it says about these trees, and then let's unpack it all. If you lay siege to a town many days to make war against it, you must not destroy its trees. Do not take an axe against them, for from them you will eat. Do not cut them down, for is the tree of the field a person that it can escape from you into the besieged town? Only that tree that you know is not one that gives food, that one you may destroy and cut down in order to construct your siege works, meaning such things as battering rams to break down a city's gates and ladders to scale its walls. That's what the Torah says. Reading between the lines, we get to what the real prohibition is in these verses. It's a prohibition against destroying anything of use to humankind or to anything else. In fact, when it comes to issues involving the environment and the ecology, these verses are probably the most important in the Torah because from them we get a large category of law known as baltashchit, which literally means do not destroy but is often referred to as the laws against wanton destruction, unrestrained destruction. To understand how this law about food-bearing trees in wartime became the chapter heading for a whole library full of environmental protection laws, let's unpack what it has to say. The commandment, the mitzvah, begins by posing a question about trees. Is the tree of the field a person that it can escape from you? The question is rhetorical. Of course, a tree can't run away from its axe-wielding attacker. Behind that question, though, is a larger sentiment. No inanimate life form can escape from us. 
because trees and other inanimate life forms are as much a part of God's creation as we are. They're to be protected, not rejected, and not destroyed. It follows, by the way, that if we must protect the inanimate life forms, we must also protect the animate ones, not just humans, but all creatures, great and small. It also follows that we also have to protect inanimate objects of every kind. Let's continue to unpack these verses. They're specifically talking about trees that produce food for humans, for every creature that depends on such food, and even for the inanimate life forms that depend on the seeds the trees produce that give birth to other trees. Even if you need a battering ram to break down the gates of the town, these verses tell us, or ladders to scale its walls, that's not a sufficient valid reason to destroy something that produces food. But if there is a sufficient valid reason to cut down trees, only the type of tree, in the Torah's words, that you know is not one that gives food may be cut down. In other words, we have to know for certain. The absence of fruit itself proves nothing because it may not be the right season for that fruit. And even here, destruction is permissible only if there's a sufficient valid reason to do so. Otherwise, even the tree that doesn't produce food may not be cut down. The Talmud, in filling in the chapter heading, asked what does a food-bearing tree represent? Its answer is that the food-bearing tree represents anything that has a purpose for humans or the rest of creation. So the sages then extended the Torah's commandment to include the wanton destruction of anything that bears fruit, meaning anything that has a purpose for humans or the rest of creation. Maimonides, the Rambam, came along a few hundred years later and codified the mitzvah of Bal Tashchit, the commandment against wanton destruction, this way. Said the Rambam, not only regarding trees, but even one who destructively, meaning without a good and valid reason for doing so, breaks vessels or rips up clothing or tears down a building or seals up a spring or wastes food, violates Bal Tashchit. So said Rambam. A few hundred years after he said that, in the 14th century, a rabbi named Aharon Halevi of Barcelona described the mitzvah of Baltashchit in a book he wrote to explain the legal interpretations and moral justifications for all of the Torah's mitzvot. It's a bit of a long quote, so bear with me. This law is meant to instill in us the love for that which is good and beneficial, he wrote, and to hold fast to it. By this means, good will fill our souls, and we will keep far from all that is evil or destructive. This is the way of the pious and those of good deeds. They love peace, rejoice in that which is of benefit to people, and brings them to Torah. Not even a grain of mustard do they destroy, and they are grieved by any destruction they may see. If it is possible to save anything that is being spoiled, they spare no effort to do so. Think about what Aaron Alevi was saying. We can't even destroy a mustard seed without a really good, valid reason. On the other hand, if it's possible to save anything that's being spoiled, we must do everything we can to prevent that spoilage from happening. The Jerusalem Talmud, written centuries before Rambam, also weighs in on Baltashchit in its own way. Quote, it is forbidden to live in a town in which there is no garden or greenery. Unquote. It follows that it's equally forbidden to destroy those gardens and greenery for no valid reason. This rule is based on another Torah commandment, this one requiring every town to be surrounded by a green belt 
in essence nowadays meaning parks for recreation and fields for animals to use for grazing. Let's get back to how the Torah forbids us to drive above the speed limit. It does so in a couple of ways, but the mitzvah of Bal Tashchit is what's relevant here. This will surprise many people, I'm sure. The Talmud nearly 2,000 years ago declared that the laws of Bal Tashchit include not burning fuels of any kind with abandon, and it specifically references all fuels, non-replenishing fossil fuels and naturally replenishing vegetable ones. In other words, nearly 2,000 years ago, based on a 3,500-year-old Torah law about not destroying a food-bearing tree in wartime, Jewish law declared that wasting natural resources was forbidden. What applied then to a lamp in the Talmud's example applies today to cars. The faster we drive, the more fuel we burn. By speeding, we burn more fuel than we need, thus violating Baltashchit. We also violate that law by not keeping our cars properly tuned because that too wastes fuel. Keeping the lights burning in rooms that are unoccupied or heating homes more than is necessary for comfort also violate this law. You can't get much greener than that, but it doesn't stop there. In addition to the food-bearing tree, the Torah has much more to say about things environmental and ecological. Those laws, as interpreted by the sages, prohibit air pollution, odor pollution, water pollution, and even noise pollution. These aren't laws created today. They're laws created by the sages nearly 2,000 years ago and by the Torah 3,500 years ago, long before anyone ever heard of environmental protection or global warming. Being aware of the world around us and understanding that we're merely God's pakid, his caretaker, his steward, is a big deal as far as Judaism is concerned. Judaism's laws are as green as it gets. And that brings us back to the three pilgrimage festivals. Ask anyone what these three festivals are about, and this is what you're likely to hear. Passover marks are going out from slavery to freedom. Shavuot marks the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, and Sukkot marks our living in temporary dwellings during the 40 years Israel spent in the wilderness before finally arriving in Canaan. What you're likely not to hear, though, is that these three festivals also have agricultural components to them. Israel's agricultural season begins around Passover, when the first grain of the year, barley, emerges. The Torah then prescribes that seven weeks be counted, literally day by day, ending on the Feast of Weeks, meaning Shavuot, which is also known as the Festival of First Fruits. It's called that because that's when many fruits start to appear, and it also marks the beginning of the wheat growing season. Sukkot, for its part, is also known as the Feast of Ingathering, celebrating the end of the yearly harvest. It's this connection to the land and its produce that begins to explain the green nature of the festivals. In a sense, the three festivals build up the emphasis on the environment, with Passover setting the stage with the counting of the days from the barley stalks appearing until Shavuot and the appearance of the first wheat stalks and the bursting forth of the first fruits. Sukkot comes last because it's the harvest festival and it's the most obvious festival where things green are concerned. The greenness of the pilgrimage festivals intensifies when Shavuot arrives. The Torah actually designates Shavuot only as an agricultural festival, but the sages added another element. Using the chronology of the Exodus, they determined that it was on the first Shavuot that God gave the Torah to Israel. 
Supposedly, Mount Sinai was covered in lush greenery, and so the custom developed for us to decorate our homes and synagogues with all manner of flowers and greenery on Shavuot. This custom obviously also honors the agricultural aspect of the festival. The greenest of the three festivals is Sukkot. The harvest is in, and hopefully it was a good one. Now, commands the Torah, the Israelites are to take four species of growing things, a fruit and three types of branches, and for seven days they're to dwell in temporary shelters, booths, or Sukkot in Hebrew. Three of the four species are combined into a single package. To the palm branch, palm is also a vegetable, to the palm branch, the lulav, are bound three myrtle branches and two willow branches with pieces of palm used for their holders and for binding the lulav itself. The lulav is then taken in the right hand and the fruit, a citron or etrog in Hebrew, is held in the left hand. The two hands come together, so all four are symbolically joined. One fruit, the etrog, one vegetable, the palm, and two different kinds of branches, myrtle and willow, are combined, a blessing is made, and the whole set is waved in six directions, east, west, north, south, towards the sky, towards the earth. It's all about the environment. It's all about our relationship to the world around us in every direction and our responsibilities to the world. Then there's the sukkah itself. It's supposed to be made out of wood and have at least three sides, and it's supposed to be covered by some material that comes from the ground. We sit in the sukkah for all our meals and generally hang out in it as often during the day as we can. Some people even sleep in their sukkot. Sukkot, in fact, may be the most important period on the Jewish calendar precisely because of its rituals, as these have come down to us. We live in an age when we're so far removed from the natural world around us. Sukkot, above all else, forces us to think about that. Sukkot is about the natural order of the world and the creator whose word caused it all to come into being. The world out there goes underappreciated and undervalued. Very rarely in our busy lives do we stop to smell the roses. Sukkot, like Shabbat, which is for another discussion, forces us to recognize that world and how much we still need it. This festival forces us to consider nature as part of our very being, indeed as part of the essence of our being. Some people look at the rituals of Sukkot and roll their eyes, but there's nothing antiquated or embarrassing about Sukkot. In fact, there's much that's quite modern and appealing about it. Everything about Sukkot is connected to the land, is connected to the environment, is connected to nature. Our world is desperately in need of all kinds of tikkun, all kinds of fixing, and that includes the trees and all the other ecological and environmental issues. Science tells us as much. According to a 2017 Climate Science Special Report by the U.S. Global Change Research Program, for example, if global warming remains unchecked, it'll cause, quote, potentially large and irreversible, unquote, damage to the planet. Potentially large and irreversible damage to the planet, thereby threatening all life on Earth. The war on trees is a serious contributing factor. Planned deforestation and the ever-intensifying forest fires we've been seeing in recent years are taking their toll, the report says. It's estimated that deforestation alone is responsible for 20% of the carbon emissions in the world today, significantly contributing to global warming. 
The continuing growth of carbon emissions, the report concluded, could, quote, lead to an atmospheric concentration not experienced in tens to hundreds of millions of years, unquote. The major festivals have been around for 3,500 years. People tend to see them as anachronistic and not suited for modern times. Clearly, that's not the case. They're more vital and more relevant today than ever before if approached and observed with their full meanings in mind. And the same is true for all of the Torah's law regarding the environment. When it comes to being green, the Torah was green long before anyone else was. When the lockdown finally ends, go out and hug a tree. It's the Jewish thing to do. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer. I hope you come back for my next podcast. Stay healthy and stay safe.